0: Good morning. I want to welcome everyone. Thank everyone for being here this morning. It's just good to see everybody. I'm glad you all uh, made the decision to come out and worship with us this morning. Uh, I want to send a little reminder. I I think we ran out of copies, but be sure to grab you a copy of the church calendar. I'll print some more off as soon as services is over. If you don't have one, uh, just keep up with all the goings on, activities, and all the various things we're we're doing. As we begin our lesson this morning. I've been noticing that anytime something happens in the world, whether it's a a natural disaster or another uh, unfortunate shooting or some kind of tragedy, you you pull up the the news article about what's going on or a a social media post or the video or the comment section of whatever, and you will inevitably always find people, typically hundreds of, of comments, all kind of saying roughly the same thing and all saying thoughts and prayers. It's an expression that is just all over the place lately, and in fact, recently, uh, recently in the NFL, there was an incident with a young man named Damar Hamlin, and it resulted in the expression, thoughts and prayers, being said on national TV more than I could ever count in one evening, and it just kind of got me thinking about how we talk about that phrase and what exactly that means. And on one hand, we look at that, and I think, well, you know, it's wonderful, it's amazing that so many people feel so uh, free to to speak about their faith or to speak about prayer, at least on such a uh, public setting and such a national spotlight. And I do think there are some people who who mean what they're saying. Don't get me wrong. But my fear is, I think what happens most of the time in situations like that, When we find ourselves dealing with tragedy, especially when it's dealing with somebody who's right in front of us, and we don't know what to say, and we've been told or we've heard that these words are supposed to bring some kind of comfort to people, so we tell them, oh, I'll pray for you. Or we tell them, oh, you know, our thoughts and our prayers are with their family. But there's actually not really ever any prayer. There's no follow-up. There's no list they're being added to. There's no actual communication between uh, the person and God on behalf of this individual who's been hurt. And what we figured out is these words just sort of fill the air. They they sound comforting. And so what we say is, you know, oh, I'm I'm praying for you. But what we're really saying is, hmm, that's real bad. I'm sorry. And I almost wonder if the prevalence of this just expression, thoughts, and prayers has actually led us to watering down the actual idea of thoughtful prayer. I mentioned that, uh, that incident in the NFL with a young man named Damar Hamlin. As I was watching the coverage of that event, there was one gentleman. Uh, his name is Dan Orlovsky. And in the middle of his, his segment on the NFL Network, appropriate that I'm talking about this today, I guess. I hadn't really thought about that. But on live TV... The other guy at the desk that he's sitting with had tossed out the expression, you know, our thoughts and prayers are with his family. And what Dan said is he said, you know what? Maybe this isn't the right thing to do. It's on my heart. And so I want to pray for that man right now. I'm going to do it out loud. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to bow my head. And I'm just going to pray for him. And he did. And I initially wanted to show that video this morning. I just didn't quite get the technology set up for it. But if you've seen the video I'm talking about, you will get goosebumps watching this man stop down in the middle of, like I said, it's either ESPN, NFL Network, one of those, the big box TV kind of channels. And for about 30, 40 seconds, he prays. Exactly as he says, out loud, head down, eyes closed. And I'll tell you, that 40 seconds will give you chills like nobody saying the expression thoughts and prayers ever has. And so this morning, as we think about just this expression and all the things going on, I want to remind us of the actual power that is in prayer. Because I think in our desire to give people sort of a quick comfort, or to just try to, in our desire to solve their problem... I think we skip out on the actual meaning behind prayer, on the actual connection we're supposed to have with an almighty and all-powerful God. And so as we spend another week studying ministry and what ministry looks like, I want to discuss the power we have in our prayer. So if you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Our our lesson this morning is going to center on uh, one story from the Gospels, from Jesus' ministry. And just to catch us up on where we're at in Mark 9, Jesus has really hit the full swing of his ministry. He's already been baptized in the Ritter of Jordan by John the Baptist. He's, he's spoken in the synagogues many times. He's fed the, the 5,000 or the 4,000. He's performed a number of healings. He's given several great sermons. He's spoken actually already of his death and of his resurrection that is to come. And in chapter 9... We have another scene where Jesus speaks again of some things that are going to take place. And again, the disciples, they, they still have not quite understood what's going on. And in Mark chapter 9, in the section we're going to look at in verse 14, Jesus has just come down from his, his miraculous transfiguration up on the mountaintop. In Mark's account of Jesus' ministry, his gospel is known for his usage of this word immediately. If you have the King James, you see it straight away. That when he was baptized, coming out of the water, the heavens opened and straight away the Spirit descended upon him. Or the sons of of Zebedee, James and John, were tending their nets and immediately Jesus called them. And so we tend to think of Mark's account of the gospel as a a gospel of action, of movement, of urgency. They're they're always quickly going from one place to the next. The people are healed and then they're over here and he's speaking over here and then he needs to run over here. And it's just always movement. And so we tend to think of gospel mark's gospel is a gospel of urgency and we have a a similar feeling here in verse 15 because it begins and immediately so jesus when mark chapter 9 begins before the section we're going to look at at the beginning of mark chapter 9 jesus takes peter and james and john the inner circle the, the one that paul would later call the pillars of the church that we mentioned in our in the letter to galatians they go up to the mountain with jesus And he is transfigured before him. Which means the fullness of God was revealed in him. His clothes became radiantly white. His face shone as if like the sun. And he reveals himself as the son of God. He, He calls himself by this name the son of man that is used in the prophets of the Old Testament. He's calling himself the Messiah. The anointed of whom all the prophets speak. And in verse 14, Jesus... And James and Peter and John are on their way back down the mountain immediately after this event. And when they come down from the mountain, they see a great crowd has converged at the foot of the mountain on those who have left behind. And so we'll see in verse 15, our story begins. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. So see, when Jesus was up on the mountain with the inner circle, the ones that we might call pillars... The nine, if there are nine already, were, were left down to sort of hold court. To to sort of deal with the crowds and sort of fend them off while Jesus was speaking. Because as is the case, everywhere Jesus goes at this point in his ministry, there's a great crowd with him. He has a great many people who follow him, who tend to him, who, who want to see what's going on all the time. And so inevitably, whenever this great crowd gathers, there are people who are bringing their sick who are bringing their leprous, who are bringing the paralyzed or their blind and broken loved ones with just this hope that if they bring them to Jesus, Jesus can heal them. And today we live in somewhat of a miraculous age, uh, not in the biblical sense of the word, but in the terms of our technology and the advancement of our medicine. If someone is afflicted with lesions or leprosy, they can hope for treatment Somebody who's paralyzed from the waist down can, at the very minimum, be in a wheelchair or some kind of mobility to still be able to leave their house, to be able to get out, to sort of at least do the basic things in their life. And actually, if you can believe this, we're getting very close to when, if someone is afflicted with certain kinds of blindness, to actually restore their sight. It's pretty amazing. But in the time of Mark, none of these things were true. The state in which these broken people came to Jesus was the state they were going to be in the rest of their lives. And that was it. That was it for them. And they hear about this man, Jesus. And they hear that his disciples are at the base of this mountain. And so they bring their sick and broken loved ones and they lay them at the feet of disciples hoping for some kind of miracle. And we see that the father of the boy with the unclean spirit, he says, I brought my son to you I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. If there's anything worse than a feeling of hopelessness, it's being given a glimmer of hope and only to have that taken away. I want you to imagine being the father of this this demon-possessed child, this child who has something resembling what we would probably call seizures and thinking, okay, maybe these people can heal him. And then he says, they could not cast it out. I'll tell you, I, having a newborn child run around, when you, when you see them, you don't want them to fall, right? You don't want to climb on anything. Suddenly you're remembering that all of your bleach and 409 and Windex is all in the worst places in the house it could possibly be. And I was talking to a woman who's probably about my mom's age a while ago. And she was, she was telling me about this, this serious affliction that had happened to her son. And when I saw the emotion in her eyes, I realized that the fears that I have for my son are never going to go away. They're not. They're going to be replaced by bigger fears. They're going to be replaced by other things because he's going to learn how to drive. He's going to get out of the house. He's going to go off on his own. And then you're like, well, I want him to be happy. Or, I want him to be safe. I want him to find the partner that makes them the best person they can be. I want them to achieve all their goals and dreams in life. And And I realize that these fears and these concerns and these worries that I have for like my 14-month-old son are actually never going to go away. They're just going to be replaced by bigger and scarier fears. And so I think about this father of this boy who brings his son hoping, hoping that his son's pain can be taken away. Look at verse 19. And he answered them, Jesus Have compassion on us and help us. You can hear the desperation in the Father's voice. And I'm going to tell you something, if you're a teenager or you're in high school that you're probably not going to like because you've probably heard it about a thousand times already, but this is one of those things that you'll just understand when you're older. (laughs) That you'll really understand when you have kids of your own. Because I'll tell you, one day you'll grow up You'll fall in love, you might get married, and you'll think, I love this person more than I could ever love any human in my entire life. And I'm serious, if you had asked me on my wedding day how much I loved my wife, I would have told you 10 out of 10. No question. But when you have a child, it's like unlocking 11 through 19. Because you you love this, my prevailing thought over and over, every time I hold my son is I'm like, man, I did not love my parents enough. It's not because I treated my parents poorly. It's just that I realize that the care a parent has for their child. And so when you read this text, and if you don't have children of your own, I'm just going to tell you this is one of those things that you'll, you'll read it and you'll think you'll understand, but you will certainly understand fully at a later time. But notice the desperation in the father's voice when he says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And of course, Jesus' response in verse 23, And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of him said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus heals this man's son. He brings joy to the Father. He, brings, he fixes at least this one broken person who had come to him that day. And when we read the Gospels, especially breaking down the text interpreting it and understanding it correctly are just such a big part of like trying to make application of scripture to your life and figure out okay what does this mean to me what does this say to me and when you read the gospel specifically you're, you're constantly asking two questions and one is what does this little story tell us about jesus what is mark trying to tell us about jesus by him healing this boy what is what is he trying to tell us about jesus when he was transfigured on the mountain what is he saying when Jesus feeds 5,000 people with two loaves and two fish? Those numbers are wrong. Sorry, I can't remember. But you also have to ask, when you, when you, when you break it down into the chapters and these little stories, how does, how does this fit into everything he's telling me about Jesus? Because, of course, Mark didn't just write chapter 9, but he wrote a whole narrative over how the Savior of the world died on the cross and rose again. And a lot of times when you're looking, when you break it down into chapters and you look at these little sections, a lot of times how a story ends will tell you exactly what the author wants you to get. When you look at how the story ends, a lot of times the meaning, just like almost a fable, and I don't want to moralize the story overly, but almost like a fable. When you get towards the end, the, the twist ending or the climax of the story will really tell you a lot about how you're to understand what's going on in the passage. And what's interesting is there's many, many stories in the Gospel of Mark, several of which have already happened by the time we get to chapter 9, that tell us of Jesus' power to heal. He heals paralyzed men, He heals blind men, He heals broken people. They're to convince us of Jesus' ability to, to command the wind and calm the storms and fix the individual problems of people. To multiply the fishes and the loaves. And, And the purpose of those stories is to tell us about just the complete power and authority over all things on the earth that Jesus has. But this story. This story in Mark from verse 14 about to verse 29. Is a powerful heart wrenching story about Jesus healing a boy who was possessed by an unclean spirit. But you'll notice something. That this story actually doesn't end when the boy is healed. Because this story isn't actually about the healing. Look at verse 28. When he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. It is a story of a healing but what it's really telling us is the power of prayer. The power of getting on our knees and talking to a God who is creator and master of the entire universe and saying, Please, I believe, help my unbelief. I'm blind and I want to see. I'm possessed by this, this spirit that's unclean and I want you to make my spirit clean. It's a story about the power of prayer. There's a few different groups of people here in Mark 9. There's the crowd, the afflicted crowd, the, the huddled masses who followed Jesus everywhere, who, who followed him up and pushed him up to the edge of the sea, that he had to jump into a boat just to get away from him. The ones who flocked to him every time he enters Jerusalem, who would huddle around him just for the chance to touch his garment, just in the hope that if I just, if I just can lay a hand on Jesus, maybe my, my problems and my afflictions will be healed. And I want you, when we read about those crowds, I want you to think about all of the people that you know in the world that are suffering. The families that are grieving the loss of loved ones. The, the families that are wrestling with deeply divisive and troublesome family dynamics and issues. Who are gripped with, with things that afflict them. Those people who are looking for just some kind of understanding and some kind of meaning in what is a bleak and confusing world to them. I want you to think about the people who are lost and see no way out. And I want you to ask, how many of those people who are suffering do not know Christ? Do not know a God who is in heaven, or or do not believe in His ability to help? James 5.15 tells us, The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has had committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another, and pray for one another. That you may be healed. And of course verse 16. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. To that lost and wandering crowd. Jesus' message is I can heal you. Jesus' message is that if you seek me I can heal you. He says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28. Come to me all you who are weary and I will give you rest. 20th century poet Robbie Van Winkle paraphrases this as. If you got a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Robbie Van Winkle, also known as Vanilla Ice. But Jesus, in Mark 9, Jesus' message to those suffering, afflicted crowds is that in prayer, there is healing. In prayer, you, when you make supplication to God, you can at least have the hope that you will be healed. But there's a lesson for the disciples as well. Not those who went up on the mountain, the inner circle, but the disciples who stayed back. The ones who at the beginning of the chapter that, that, that Jesus says, you, you faithless generation. Because he's actually not talking to the father in verse 19. He's talking to those that he left to sort of hold court while he was gone, to, to tend over things, to oversee things. The disciples who were in the truest sense of the word students, but they just didn't really get it yet. They were studying Jesus. They were learning from Jesus. They've been following Jesus for years in his ministry now. But over and over we see Jesus tell them, you just just don't get it. In the last chapter, just before Mark 9 and Mark 8, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And of course, meaning the, the, the teaching and the false doctrine that he said a little bit can corrupt a whole lump. But the disciples say, beware of the leaven. We don't, we don't have bread. What is he talking about? In Jesus' response in Mark 8, he says, Do you not perceive or understand? Having eyes you do not see and having ears you do not hear. And do you not remember? Because over and over, Jesus is reminding his own disciples to say, Do you remember what I just did? Do you remember what you just saw? Do you remember what you just heard? He's reminding his, his own followers, like the people who have already made the choice to leave their lives and follow him. And, they're, and the disciples themselves are like, look, we're trying. We're not just trying to be lost. We don't want to be confused. They just, they don't quite get it. And I wonder how often we can see ourselves in the stories of obedient but still deeply flawed disciples. How easy is it to sort of understand the perspective of a Thomas Who said, unless I see the nails, unless I touch my finger to his side, I will not believe. Or how easy is it to relate to Peter? Peter, who in that upper room, at the very famous scene at the Last Supper, when they're gathered around the table with Jesus one last time, Peter says, oh Lord, I will never forsake you. But of course, what happens later that very night? Over and over in the Gospels, we see the disciples... They're striving to follow Jesus, but sometimes they just don't get it. And the cry of the wayward disciple is the cry of the father where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And so I think of those of us who, who know God, who have heard the stories of Jesus. And you know what? Maybe you raised in the church, but there's just some things you look at and you say, I just, I don't know about that. Maybe some things have happened in your life that have sort of come up between you and the church or cropped up between you and God. And so when when you read the Bible, you say, you know, I want to believe and I get it and I know that you're real, but there's some things I I just don't know about that. There's a message for those in Mark 9 as well. Because Jesus says to the disciples the students, the followers of him who just sometimes don't fully get it, he says all things are possible for one who believes. Prayer helps our unbelief. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you, James 4, 8 says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, Isaiah 55, 6. To those who would cry, I believe, help my unbelief, Jesus says prayer is the step toward reigniting your faith. Prayer is crucial to to restoring your soul. And so for those of us who just don't quite get it, Jesus' prayer is the answer. There's one last group. There's one last group who were there when Jesus healed the boy with the unclean spirit. And it's actually the three who went up with him on the mountain. The, The three who were in that inner circle as we call them. The ones who supposedly got it. The ones to whom Jesus had revealed the the fullness of his nature. The ones who knew the plan. Who knew what was coming. The disciples who come down and and they come down from the mountain off this spiritual high. Having certainly seen anything more powerful than they've ever seen in their entire lives. And they come back and they're like, wait a second. We just saw Jesus be revealed as God. And like we leave for five minutes and you can't heal people? What's going on? We just saw the full nature of God. But now Jesus is calling all of you guys a faithless generation. From the transfiguration onward, Peter, James, and John knew Jesus in a way that the others just didn't. And at the top of the chapter, in the transfiguration, Jesus actually tells them to tell no one. He strictly charges them with this. There are disciples who get it. To those who are not suffering. To maybe those who have followed Christ and you say, well, I've never been wayward, I've never felt lost. You're saying, look, I'm here, I'm, I'm all in, I'm committed, I'm, I'm plugged in, but where's everybody else at? Why is it I can get it, but, but nobody else seems to be where I'm at? And in Matthew 13, there's this scene where, where the disciples ask Jesus why he speaks in parables. And Jesus says simply, to you it has been given, but to them it has not been given. He doesn't say they earned it. He doesn't say, you know, Peter, James, and John, you're just a lot smarter than all those other fishermen that were standing there on the beach that day. He says, not everyone can accept this word that I'm giving. But to those disciples who feel like they're they're on their journey of faith, and you look at your life and you say, well, you know what? Things just make so much sense. You can kind of have a tendency to look around and say, well, why doesn't everybody else get it? Why is just not everyone where I am? The truth just is, just like the disciples who went up on the mountain while some stayed back, not everyone has had the same journey you have had. If you're someone who's strong in your faith, sometimes there's this tendency when we feel like we get it to look around and say, where's everybody else? Why does my life make sense in God and why is my spiritual relationship great? But you guys just can't seem to figure it out. Sometimes this group can have a lot of issues with that second group we were talking about. But just like how some disciples stayed at the foot of mountain and some went up, our journey and our faith can sometimes be very different. And to those who feel like things are going well, Mark 9 is a humbling reminder that it will not always be that way. And that if we're honest with ourselves, it probably hasn't always been that way. Jesus tells, shows the disciples. There's a very humbling experience when you come before the throne of God and you pray for him to do something that you can't. Jesus' message for, for tackling this problem of feeling like everyone's just not quite where you are and where, how sometimes you can feel this, this almost air of superiority when you look out and you see people struggling. Jesus says, don't sit here and feel, don't stay on the mountain, don't stay on the mountain and look down at the people suffering and say, oh, just just get it. Just figure it out. Because What do they do in Mark nine? They have their experience. They have their revelation, but they come down from the mountain. Why? Because Jesus ministry of healing is for all. He said, you can't just stay up here on the mountain and, and live in this nice little spiritual high. Like church camp is over. Go home. Take what I have shown you and go back to your life and do something with it. And so I think sometimes when we talk about those who have wandered, those who have strayed in their faith, we, sometimes we see the story like the older brother and the prodigal son. We see people running home and we kind of give them the side eye. Kind of say, why? Why do they get the fatted calf? Why do they get the gold ring? Jesus reminds us in this section of Mark 9 that in prayer... There is humility. Because when you talk to God, suddenly that mountaintop is not as high as it was when you were looking down at the people who were the faithless generation below. (laughs) You might be up on the mountain with God, but when you're talking to God, God reminds you who is the disciple and who is God. When you look out, When you look out and you tell people that, you know, I get it in my faith, but some people just don't. And you say, well, what can I do for those who just don't get it? He tells us that problems of that kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. In prayer, there is healing for those who are afflicted. There's a new sense of strength for those disciples and students of Jesus who have just become lost. But there's humility for those who get it. And there's a reminder to help. There's a reminder to pray for those who might not be where you are, to pray for those who are suffering, to, to pray for all of those who need their strength renewed. As we close our lesson this morning, the invitation is for those like the young boy in Mark 9 who are looking for healing, for the crowd who is gathered looking for just some kind of sign from God. If you have need of repentance, if you have need of baptism, if you are looking for salvation, won't you come while we stand? And while we sing Heart, the gentle voice of Jesus tender